if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to 1 John chapter 4. That's where we are today. We are zooming through this book. Do you laugh? Some people zooming as other people slow motion. <laughs> you know, I take this uh, crazy dachshund, I'm um, not dachshund, I mean, uh, Dalmatian we have staying with us. Along with our grandkids, we have our grand dog. <laughs> and this dog is really fast, but every day I walk it down the railroad tracks and come back, you know, the path along the railroad tracks. And, and uh, that dog is so fast. But yesterday he was chasing a rabbit and oh. didn't have a chance. <laughs> that rabbit was so much faster. So he thought he was fast, but... Anyway, I'm just saying it goes back and forth. Depends on how you perceive things. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to open your word to us today and just bless us as we uh, again talk about one of the great topics that John wants to present to us in Christ's name. Amen. So, I was wondering if our text for today is a surprise. And I mean, I've read 1 John many times, so it's not a surprise to me. Not now, but... Um, He's sort of, John is sort of stuck on a topic. I mean, the letter is very orderly. It's very well thought out. You kind of have to get used to John's very simple style of writing. But once you do that, it kind of flows beautifully. And we've talked a lot of times about his purpose for writing. Some people had left the church to go join a cult. And that raised the question, what is a true Christian? So he had these three tests, and we've talked about them a bunch of times, but in case you're new, I'm going to walk through them real quick. So three tests on whether or not you're a true Christian. One is the righteousness test. A true Christian lives a righteous life. They desire to do that. They obey the commands of God. Chapter 2, verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The other second test is the that we believe the truth about Jesus Christ. So you could call it the doctrinal test. John chapter, 1 John 2, 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You have to believe the right thing about Christ. Then the third test was the love of the brethren. And you can see that in chapter 3, verse 14. In summary fashion, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So it's all simple, straightforward, very clear. A Christian is marked by those three things. But what John does after he goes through each of these tests of authenticity two times, so he goes through each one, then he goes back and goes through each one again, he's going to come back to one of them again. And so that's kind of where we are today. And guess which one it is? It's really his theme, it's what he's known for, and that is that we love one another. So he's going to hit that one again. In fact, all the rest of chapter 4 is really about that theme. So I think there's a reason for that, uh, especially considering who he's writing to. Because the commandment keeping and sound doctrine about who Jesus is are really important um, to the overall theme of who is a true Christian who's born of the Spirit, a person that's truly born of the Spirit, believes the right things about Jesus, tries to live a righteous life, has a goal to live a righteous life. It's very helpful to talk about that. But the people John is writing to are not the ones who left the church, right? 
They're not the ones that abandoned the true Jesus for a false Jesus. They believe Jesus is the incarnation of the Son of God. He's true God and true man. They already believe that. They're solid. They don't need any convincing. They're 100% on board with all of that. They don't need to be told that God is to be obeyed either. They know that. Keeping the commandments is something they're committed to. He actually talks about that in the letter. And so while we all sin, all of us sin, hopefully we're maturing in a direction of godly living. Some of us are at the beginning of that and some of us are farther along than that. But all of that said, there's not a church on earth that doesn't need to be reminded that we are to love each other. That's because we're humans. And we get into conflicts and difficulties and troubles with each other. But we're supposed to love each other and lay down our lives for each other. And that often means laying down our pride, laying down our preferences, laying down it's got to be my way or this or that. So if our remaining sin, the sins of the flesh, um, attack us anywhere, it's probably not going to be doctrinally and it's probably not going to be at least desiring to obey God's commandments and follow them. It's really the failure to love well. That's usually where it comes in for a believer. It's just too easy. <laughs> it's too easy to look down on other people and think the worst and insist on our own way. It's just way too easy to do that. So laying down your life, you know, for your best friend, that's pretty easy to do. But those folks who are different from us or see things in a different way or are just kind of rugged and um, not our kind of people and that kind of stuff, that takes love. It takes an uncommon love. So John goes right to the issue of love again. He just can't stay away from it. So that's where we are. Um, let me define love one more time in case anybody hasn't been with us for this whole study there. So the Greek word for love is agape. You've probably seen a lot of Christian things called agape this, agape that. That's the word for love in the New Testament. Um, and that love is, we defined it as wanting what's best for other people. So my heart, my goal, my relationship with you in any way is going to be what is best for you. That's how I'm going to think. That's how I'm going to behave. That's what Christian love is. Um, as used in the New Testament, it's always wanting what's best for others. This word agape. F.F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar, he, he says agape is a consuming passion for the well-being of others. I like that definition. So it's not about possessing other people like other kinds of love. Unfortunately in English love has multiple meanings. You know, Greek has a lot of different words for love which is much more helpful. But you know, I've heard people say, I love you, I love you, and they want to beat them up, right? So I mean, it, it's, uh, they, they possess them. It's a selfish kind of thing. It's not what's desiring best for the other person. It's a self-feeding kind of a, a thing. And um, agape is not that way. Eros, uh, the sensual kind of love, it's one of the Greek words for love, is a I want you kind of love, you know, um, possessing kind of a love. Agape isn't about possessing, it's about blessing. So don't get those two words confused. It's not about possessing someone, it's about blessing someone. That's what agape love is. All of my actions toward you will be for good. All my thoughts toward you will be working towards good. If, if I have bad thoughts, I'm going to work those thoughts until I'm ready to do good to you, until I'm thinking about how I can do good to you. How would I get the strength to even do that? Well, that's kind of what we're talking about today. Okay, but that is our purpose. That's what agape is. I'd rather, 
I'd rather be hurt than to hurt you. That's an aspect of agape. I'd rather be hurt than hurt you. I, I want the best for you. So whether you want to call it a consuming passion or not, uh, that's F.F. Bruce's description there, it is a dedication and a commitment to act for the good of others always. That's what love is. That's what love is. And we mean acting for their true good, right? Not just pleasing them or giving them whatever they want because if somebody wants something that's bad for them, we don't just give them that, right? So it's truly wanting what's good for them. So we all know giving people what they want is not always a good idea because they might want something that's very destructive. Sometimes love has to say hard things, right? Sometimes love has to graciously tell people things they don't really want to hear. And they might have to hear that many times from many different people. Sometimes love has to graciously do that because, what does it say in Proverbs? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That good. I'm glad you know that verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So Christian love wounds in love. In other words, it might hurt your feelings to hear the truth about you, but I've got to tell you what that is. Christian love should also be sacrificial. In 1 John 3.16, that's where John calls it laying down your life for the brethren. So it has to be sacrificial as well. So all the rest of chapter 4 after verse 8 is another look at Christian love. And the text we're looking at today is not just an exhortation to love. There's a lot of deep theology here. Um, deep, but as John always does, he uses elementary school language to say really deep things. So he's going to walk us through some great truths about the doctrine of salvation and that helps us define love and motivates us to love, which I think is the most important thing here in what we're talking about today. So let's look at verse 7 and 8 where John um, is once again identifying love as the distinguishing mark of a true Christian. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See, that that's the test part there. If there's no love in your heart for people, for your brothers in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't know God. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. That's the measurement. If you are born of God, you will love, because a person born of him has a new nature, and that new nature reflects the heart of God. So that love is put in us by God. Someday in heaven that, that new nature is going to be an absolutely full flower. It's going to be untainted by anything. And it's going to be perfect. But here on earth in all of our imperfections divine love is still in the heart of a true Christian. And, and we want to work that love to so get in touch with it and so let it uh, fill us that it's what's overflows in all of our relationships with other people. So God puts it in us and the Holy Spirit guides us with it and convicts us of our failures in love and helps us to make God's selfless love an ever increasing reality in our lives. That's what we're supposed to be about. Right? Paul says in Romans 5.5 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you're a real Christian, that has happened in some meaningful way. God works in all who know him to reproduce his love in them. Verse 8 helps us distinguish the true and the false Christian there. If, he just says it. If church folks don't have love, they need the Lord. They need the Lord. They don't know him. So what does a lack of love look like? 
Well, there's all kinds of forms of hatred or selfishness or sometimes it's very harsh and judgmental and loud and unyielding and cruel. It can also be really quiet behind working behind the back, you know, whispering, undermining people, happily, happily and with a smile taking advantage of somebody else. That's hatred too. That's a lack of love. Sometimes you can flatter people to their face and say wonderful things to them and at the same time you're sticking a knife in their back, right? So many forms of behavior, so many versions of behavior that love is not the driving motivation in human behavior. Any promotion of self at the expense of other people is a failure in love. So all these things are ungodly. And I, I mean in the truest sense they're ungodly because they're so ungodlike. And God is full of love. God is love. So, church people, we should never be like that, right? But it's very common. Very common. Even among people in ministry. You know, pastors can get so absorbed in their own image or their own ministry. They can abuse their authority. They can fail to love people. They can mistreat people. They can make it all about them. That happens all the time. Some people think, some people think being bold for the truth is actually shredding other human beings and tearing them apart and putting them down. Being insulting, smug, arrogant, peevish, um, nasty, that's not love either. But it is, it is love for the word of God. It's a hearty defense of the truth. Well, is it a hearty defense of the truth if you're smashing another person to give them the truth? And I don't mean taking apart their arguments out of love or confronting them with their sins out of love. I'm thinking, just being an arrogant fool, you know, for the truth. That's not love. You've just undone any effect the truth might have by treating people like that. John is telling us that this is God's very nature to love. And that nature has to be seen along with the truth or else you're not presenting the truth. Because that's such a key part of the truth of Christianity is the love that comes with it. So never leave the truth unspoken but saying it with the motive uh, of love is critical. You're doing a person good. That's what your purpose is. It's not to win a fight or achieve some kind of triumph over someone so you can stand on their, you put your foot on their chest and beat your breast when somebody takes a picture of you with that poor pagan laying on the ground that you just undid. It's not that. It's how can I help that guy? How can I help them understand? I'm going to tell them the truth and I'm going to love them and let the Holy Spirit open their heart. It's always our problem when our, it's a big problem when our goal is to win an argument and not win a person. So love has to be critical. When we don't love, what is he saying here? We're, we're basically making a declaration. I don't know God. If I don't love, I don't know you. I'm not born of him. That's kind of the proclamation you make when you don't love. And I'm not saying our failures, every failure is a sign that we don't know God because we all fail. But if love is absent, if that's not in us, if we don't perceive even that that's got to be the driving force of our life, a love for people, we really should take stock and examine ourselves and see who we are in Christ, if we are in Christ. So all who know Jesus are to grow in love to Jesus. They're supposed to be in love, show that love like Jesus did. If we love him, we're going to be like him.
So, we, you know, we all start our Christian life as little babies, right? Babes in Christ. Remember that. You don't start as some kind of a grand poobah or anything in the church, right? We all start as babies. You're a spiritual newborn. So we all have a lot to learn. And everybody, everybody has opposition to love wired into us because we're fallen. What do they call that in the Bible? There's a word for that. It has to do with, yeah, yeah, I heard that somewhere. Flesh, yeah, that's the word. It's the flesh. Here's some words associated with the flesh in the New Testament. Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance. That's just a few from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10. So we have to master those things in us because they're going to show up in us some of those things. The whole point is we're babes, we need to grow. We're not instantly excellent at love. Oh yes I am, I love every, I doubt if you are. <laughs> you probably have some work to do somewhere. We all need to grow. And I think, I think of Paul's instruction to the Thessalonian church, which is a great church. It was one of the great churches. It was super successful, spiritually speaking. But he exhorted them to keep on making progress. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, he says... You have no need for anyone to write you. It's exactly what John says. The Holy Spirit teaches us these things. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. See, that's how you know if you're a Christian or not. The Lord teaches you that. That basic thing to love the brethren. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. All Macedonia, he says. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. There's always room to grow in love. That's what he's saying. These guys were doing great. He praises them for it. You guys are so good. Excel still more. Keep going for it. You're doing great. Keep going. Keep growing. Keep moving forward. You can never say I've arrived when it comes to love. I don't know any human being that could say that. Not in this life anyway. So, and some of you are, are like that Thessalonian church. You're absolutely doing great. And you need to excel more. And some of us are really struggling to get anywhere close to that. And we have a lot of work to do. Soul work, they call that, you know. Reflection, giving up self. Repentance. John is telling us in chapter 4, verse 7, that God, it is God's nature to love. Love is from God, he says there. So the kind of love we must have is the same kind of love that he showed us when he became human in Christ Jesus. Did you know, did you know that idolaters and blatant sinners enjoy the beauty that God has made in the world, that they delight in it and it pleases them? Did you know that? They can delight in the beauty of a mountain stream and rejoice in it and it touches their hearts in some beautiful way or some magnificent animal, they see it and it moves them and it touches them. Did you know that if a, a godly Christian had a farm and a wicked pagan had a farm next door that it's going to rain on both of their fields? Did you know that? Well, that's not right. Why should that happen? Why does that happen? Why isn't God more selective with the rain? I don't understand that. 
Well, Jesus actually told us in the Sermon on the Mount what, what's going on there. It's God's love. It's God's love. Matthew 5, 43. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He does that. No, that's just the patterns of weather. Well, who designed that? God, God does that. And then he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So your goal is perfect love. That's what should be our, our the, th the thing we're striving for is a perfect love. That's what our Savior is telling us. That's his command. It's right there. You cannot, if you cannot love your enemies, you've got soul work to do. You've got some work to do. That's normal because God loves everyone. He shows that love to everyone and just all of creation and all the common grace that touches every life in the world, the beauty, beauty of the world, providing food for the world. Now before we go on, I want to talk a little about the last line in verse 8. I've got to talk about this because uh, it gets so abused. God is love. Those three words. God is love. I don't know if it's the most abused, misused, and twisted verse in the Bible. Probably judge not lest you be judges the most misused verse. But this is right up there. It's got to be in the top three. At least since the 1960s, this has got to be in the top three. And here's what people do. They see God is love, and to them that means love is God. If God is love, love is God. That's, they just make that connection in their head. So one word, love, literally equals the other word, God. So it says God is love. They're completely interchangeable. God is love, love is God. And I'll get to the grammar in a minute. Some of you already said, what's this going on in the bulletin there? Are you trying to teach us Greek? Yeah, so pull out your bulletin. We'll be getting there in a few minutes. But um, some people actually change the meaning of love. This is another thing that happens. They change the meaning of love as John defines it here. And they redefine love as our culture often uses the word love. Um, eros or some other kind of uh, passion sort of love, you know, not agape love, but they substitute another kind of love for that, and you, but use that God is love. So, just to be a little bit crude, if two people are shacking up and they are told that God's word says that fornication is a sin, that God's design for human intimacy is a marital covenant, a covenant called marriage, they might answer this way, if you pointed that out, that that's a sin, they'd say, God is love, man. <laughs> that might be what they would say. So the redefinition is used to throw all divine morality out the window. And any eros-based relationship, including polygamy, and now we're getting into thruples, right? I think in New York they just actually legalized thruples. That's three people marrying each other. Um, that's got to be accepted. Well, why should that be accepted? God is love, man. 
Is that what John means? Is love the acceptance of all human behaviors? So that's how our world defines it though. That's how the world defines it. Is, is love contrary to or diminished by God's commandments? That's the question. Or are the commandments actually giving definition to what love really is? That's the biblical understanding. When God gives a commandment, he's giving definition to what love actually is. You could jump forward to John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Because if you love, it's not a killer to you to obey the commandments. Or you could back up to chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. If you're a commandment keeper, truly keeping the commandments, the love of God has been perfected. That's so clear. So anytime someone uses the word God is love to justify sin, immorality of any kind, you say, you could say this, you could say, they say, you know, God is love. That's what they say. And then you could say, where does it say that in the Bible? 99% of the time they'll have no idea. So you could say, well if you don't know, it's actually in 1 John chapter 4. And then you could say, you know what else John said there? And then you could take him to some of these verses we just read, you know. Uh, chapter 2 verse 4 and 5, or chapter 2 verse 15 through 17, uh, any of those things. It says that too. And, and the response will tell you if the Bible is their authority, or just some playground they're messing around with. You know, just to throw words at you. God is love. It's in the Bible, man. One way God is love is misused then is to redefine love differently than how the Bible defines it. That's one way. Now there's another way this verse is abused and we already kind of touched on it, but it's, I would call it hippie metaphysics. <laughs> God is love and to these folks that means anywhere you see love, that's God. Okay, so I would just pick anything. There's a family of pagans and they're a loving family. And so you say, look, man, that's God. That's love. That, that, you know, the father loves the kids. They love their parents. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's God right there. No, no, that's really nice that they're a loving family, but that's not God. They're not God. How can mere familial affection be God? That's not God. But God is love. So now we can learn something from a pagan family that's very loving. We can say, well, how do they interact with each other? And that's a very nice thing and it's a good model and all of that. Because human beings are made in the image of God. We all have the capacity to love, but is that love, is the love God that they have for each other? No, God is a person. He's not an emotion. He's not an affection or an action. God is a person. So the idea that love is God is not only contrary to everything it says in the Bible about God, it's grammatically impossible. Now you go to your bulletin and you look in there. And you look down on the right hand column no, towards the bottom and it says a bit of Greek grammar. You see that? 
it's grammatically impossible to switch God and love in the Greek language. So we read it and it's translated usually God is love. But that's not how it appears in the Greek Bible. And that's what I wanted to show you. Notice the word. What's different, what's different about love and God in that? So you know what a definite article is? That's a grammatical term. It's the word the. The. So God has a definite article. And I put it in Greek just to prove it and show you how clever I am. But <laughs> God, has, God has the definite article but love doesn't. So that's saying something important in Greek. And, and it gets a little more complicated than this. But generally speaking, if they both have the article and they're both in the same case, the nominative case, like the, they are here. If they have, both have the article, it's kind of saying they're the same thing. But if one doesn't have the article, then you're saying the, the, second, the second word is describing the qualities of the first word. Does that make sense? So they would be equal if they both had the article there, but they're not. So they're not interchangeable. It's talking about, also this is a person and a thing. A person and a quality here. So that also makes it impossible for them to be equal. But the grammar itself tells you right there. So, and, and another example, if you just skip down on, that, on your bulletin there and see 1 John 1.5, the same thing, God is light. It translates God is light, but it's the same grammatical construction. It's not that light is God. Who says that? Look at the LEDs there. That's God. Because light is God. No, no. The sun. It's so bright. The sun is God. No, that's paganism. The sun is not God. God is light, but light isn't God. Do you see the difference? <laughs> so it's a quality of God. And when we talk about light um, and God, we're talking about that God is pure and good right through and true but a flashlight that's not God <laughs> it's not it's not so I hope that I hope that's clear the bottom line is you can no more say that love is God than you can say that light is God just based on the grammar of the text here God is love means his nature is characterized by love God is loving God is full of love he's a person who loves that's what it says okay Let's get back to John's point there. I had to show you that. Okay, let's look at verse 9 and pay close attention to verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Some translations say among us or toward us. The idea is that believers are the recipients of God's love. We have experienced God's love. We've had, we have a grasp on what God means when he says love one another because he's extended his love to us. And as we understand that and grasp that and take it to heart, it'll start to flow out of us because we get it. How is his love manifested? How did we see his love in, in the gospel? In the gospel. You may see it in a thousand ways, but never more clearly than in what Christ has done for us. In fact verse 9 and 10 sound very much like the most famous verse in the gospel of John. That football players write under their eyes. First John 3. I mean John 3.16 right. So here's 1 John 4.9. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. So that we might live through him. You can tell John wrote both books right. John 3.16 and this verse. 
Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The what? I'll get to that. So God sent his son, why? That we might live, he says in verse 9. Why do we need to live? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. So we're under a sentence of death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That sentence is just. That sentence is deserved. Man is sinful. This shouldn't be really that hard to grasp if you just look at human nature and human history and open the newspaper every day. Humanity is not a, it's not a pretty story, the story of humanity. And whenever it starts to look like something might be turning into a pretty story, they wreck it. Humans wreck it every time. Everything goes south. No, no offense on the south. I mean, that's just an expression. <laughs> but the seed, the seed of sin runs deep in human beings. And it brings forth horrible things. And that's what we're seeing in our culture today. But the love of God was manifested to us in that, quote, God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So God's love grants us life. And do you know what motivates the Lord's love toward us? Why does God love us? Is, that, is it that he was delighted by our love for him so much that he, did, he loved us in return? Is that what it is? No. Does God love us because he saw our concern for moral principle and was so impressed <laughs> that he said, I just love those people. Does he love us because of our diligent care to never violate one of his precepts? Is that why he loves us? No. It's our commitment that our creator's will should have first place in our lives always. That's what drew his attention. And no, that's not it. <laughs> Would that those were true, but they're not. That's not why he loves us. We're not so lovable. We're not so good. We're not so godly. So we're not so eager to love and to serve God that he just had to love us. No, verse 10 in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's not that we loved God, not at all. He loved us anyway. Romans chapter 5, of course, it says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. And Paul also says there, while we were sinners... Christ died for us. In fact, it also says in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So that's not a very good list of qualities. You know why God should love me? Because I'm ungodly and a sinner and his enemy. That doesn't sound right, but that's actually the truth. He loves us when we were in that condition. So listen, if sometimes you feel very unworthy of God's love, because you fail to be all that you should be? Hey, remember how much the Lord loved you before when you had nothing but faith. 
and had nothing to offer him. And just like in those Romans 5 verses, John wants us to know the depth of God's love, the extent of God's love. So of course he points us to the thing that showed the greatest reality of God's love, which is the cross itself, what Jesus accomplished there. And this is love, verse 10 again, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, propitiation is a big word. Some translators won't use it anymore because it's a big word and they don't like big words. You know, somebody studied humanity, uh, Americans, and the average American reads at a 12-year-old level. So a lot of translations are aimed at 12-year-olds. But, um, and propitiation, well, that's a big word. Who knows what that means? So they don't use it anymore. But it's, it's better if they do use it because usually they stick in sacrifice of atonement or something like that, which I don't think a 12-year-old necessarily understands what that is either. But propitiation has a very specific meaning and it means to turn away anger or wrath to turn it aside, to appease someone's anger. So in spiritual terms, if I'm a sinner and I contribute to the evil in God's moral universe which makes me unworthy of eternal life and God is holy and he's good and in a moral universe he cannot let wickedness go on and there's a judgment day that's set and the sinner is targeted for judgment on that day of wrath He's going to be excluded from the joys of heaven and forfeit life with God forever because of his wickedness. And that wrath is just and right and good. If a human being is too sinful to ever turn away God's wrath in himself, there's nothing we can do to be saved by God. So God did it. God did it. He did it for us. He saved us. Why would he do that? Because his nature is to love. That's the whole point John's making here. From the very beginning, when man fell, from the very beginning, God started working out this plan of redemption. He knew that plan of redemption before the world was even created. It was all set to go. He started working that redemptive plan for man. God's plan from the beginning, centered on and that's why it's predicted so much in so many ways through the Old Testament. It's all centered on God's Son becoming a human being. That's Christmas, right? A sinless man offering up his sinless life as a substitute for us, a sacrifice. So by his death, God's wrath against us as sinners is turned aside. That's propitiation. It satisfies the wrath of God. His death is in our place and that satisfies the wrath of God turns it away from us so God is truly holy but his love made a way for sinners why would he do that why do the people deserving his wrath have that provided for them and the answer is love that's it a love beyond our comprehension because we really don't even begin to conceive of what it's like to bear the sin of the world, which Jesus did. He wasn't just dying on a cross, which was one of the most horrible ways to die. He was bearing the sin of humanity in doing it, taking the wrath of God upon himself. That is propitiation. That's what that word means. That's why it's such a good word. So this incredible expression of God's love was not in any way an afterthought. It was set in eternity past 
before the world was. Did you know that? God's love was there from the very, very beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, let me just read this for you. He chose us in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace wow are you thankful are you really thankful daily thankful if all this about God's love moves your heart at all, that's the love you're supposed to imitate. That's the love we're supposed to carry into the world. That's the love, the kind of love people are supposed to see in us. He not only sent his son to die for my sins, he made me his child. And I'm so secure in his love that I am free to love other people no matter how they treat me, no matter what they do. That's how a Christian lives, always seeking the best for the other person. Not to possess them, but to bless them. Even those really difficult people. Let's pray. Our great God, you are love. Let us never forget that. You've made us your children. Let us rest in that love. But also help us to live out love toward other people. Remind us every day of our gift and let our compassion go out to all people. Let it start at our home and in our church and then let's take it to the office and to school and let your love be our nature until it is perfected in glory someday. We ask this in the name of our Savior, who is love manifest. Amen.